With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. It's time for Home is Where the Haunt is, the portion of our podcast devoted to personal experiences with ghosties and ghoulies. Have a story to share? Send it in to afterwardsstories at gmail.com. We're dying to hear from you. This story comes from Real Ghost Stories, Paranormal Object Stories, edited by Eve S. Evans. The title is Shutter. I borrowed the camera from my teacher, Mrs. Thompson, without any inkling of the horrors that would unfold. It was a beautiful vintage piece with its worn leather casing and intricate brass details. Mrs. Thompson always encouraging my passion for photography, entrusted me with it, hoping I would capture moments of beauty and wonder. Little did I know that the weekend I took the camera would forever be etched in my memory as a time of darkness and despair. A hurricane ravaged our small town, its fierce winds and torrential rain tearing through the streets, leaving destruction in its wake. The storm was merciless, and amidst the chaos, tragedy struck. Mrs. Thompson, with her kind heart and adventurous spirit, had ventured out into the tempestuous night, perhaps to help others in need or to brave the elements for some unknown reason. She never returned. News of her demise during the hurricane spread quickly, casting a shadow over the entire community. I was devastated by the loss of my teacher, mentor, and friend. In the days that followed, I resolved to return the camera to Mrs. Thompson's grieving family. It seemed only right to honor her memory by giving back what she had entrusted to me. With a heavy heart, I made my way to her home, a quaint cottage nestled on the outskirts of town. As I stood on the doorstep, a sense of foreboding washed over me, as if the very air carried whispers of an unseen presence. Mrs. Thompson's family welcomed me warmly, their eyes filled with sorrow. They insisted I keep the camera, explaining that it was the last thing she had given me and that it held a special significance. I tried to protest, but they were resolute. Reluctantly, I accepted their offer, knowing that this camera would forever be a reminder of the teacher I had lost. One evening, as I sat alone in the dimly lit room, the air heavy with the scent of developer chemicals, I carefully studied the photographs that had just emerged from the darkroom. They were my latest works, capturing the essence of the abandoned mansion on the outskirts of town. 
the flickering light of the candles, the peeling wallpaper, and the decaying furniture all held a certain allure that drew me in. But as I gazed at the developed prints, a chill ran down my spine, as though an icy finger traced its way along my vertebrae. Dark, shadowy figures lurked in the background of the photographs, their forms distorted and indistinct, like phantoms emerging from the depths of my subconscious. They seemed to melt into the surroundings, blending seamlessly with the crumbling walls and the inky blackness of the corners. Their presence, barely visible, sent a shiver through my soul, as if they possessed some malevolent purpose that defied explanation. I had not noticed them while capturing the shots, my focus consumed by the grandeur of the mansion's ruinous beauty, but now they revealed themselves, hauntingly etched into the images like secrets whispered by unseen lips. Their enigmatic nature fueled my curiosity, yet a sense of unease gnawed at my core. Unable to contain my growing apprehension, I decided to share the photographs with my friends, hoping their rational minds could provide an explanation that eluded me. Gathering them in my parlor, we sat around the mahogany table, the photographs laid out before us like evidence in a macabre trial. Silence enveloped the room as their eyes scanned the images, and I watched their expressions morph into mirrors of my own unease. The atmosphere grew thick with trepidation, as if the room itself had become a receptacle for our collective fear. Whispers of disbelief and uncertainty filled the air, mingling with the faint scent of old books and the distant echoes of a clock's ticking. What are these figures? my friend Amelia finally ventured, her voice trembling slightly. They seem otherworldly, as if they exist beyond the realm of our understanding. I nodded my heart pounding in my chest. I've never encountered anything like it before, I confessed, my voice barely above a whisper. The camera captured something, something that defies explanation, something that lies hidden from our mortal sight. The others nodded, their faces pale, their eyes reflecting a mixture of fascination and fear. We delved into a heated discussion, each of us offering theories that danced on the border between reality and superstition. Were they ghosts, lingering spirits trapped within the mansion's decaying walls? Or perhaps they were demons, summoned by some dark ritual that had long been forgotten? The possibilities seemed endless, and yet each explanation felt insufficient, unable to capture the true essence of the enigmatic figures. One night, as I sat on the worn-out couch, seeking solace from the relentless haunting of the photographs that lined the walls, a heavy silence settled upon the house. The dim light from the flickering candle barely illuminated the room, casting eerie shadows that danced across the peeling wallpaper. The air was thick with anticipation, as if something ominous lurked just beyond the veil of my perception. As I trembled on the couch, the fabric rough against my clammy skin, a cold draft enveloped the room, seeping into my very bones. I huddled closer to myself, desperately seeking warmth that eluded me. It was then that I felt it, a touch, a graze against my skin, as if an invisible hand had reached out to reassure me, or perhaps to claim me as its own. 
The sensation was both gentle and unnerving, like icy tendrils brushing against my flesh. I shivered involuntarily, goosebumps rising in response to this ethereal caress. It was as though I had become a vessel, a conduit for the paranormal forces that swirled around me. They tugged and pulled at my very being, their unseen fingers tracing a path along my spine, leaving me breathless and terrified. Every photograph I take now carries the weight of uncertainty, a fear of what may manifest within its depths. The world around me has become a realm of perpetual unease, where the line between the living and the spectral blurs. The camera, once a tool of artistic expression, has transformed into a conduit for the supernatural. Sleep eludes me as nightmares haunt my nights, visions of those ethereal figures lurking in the shadows, waiting to claim me. Their presence lingers in the corners of my vision, a constant reminder that I am forever touched by the otherworldly. I have tried to seek solace in rational explanations to convince myself that it is all a figment of my imagination. But the undeniable truth remains, etched into my memories and captured with those haunted photographs. The camera holds a power beyond comprehension, a window into a world unseen. I have contemplated destroying it, erasing this source of terror from my life. But a part of me hesitates, unsure of the consequences that may follow. What if the camera's malevolence extends beyond its physical form? What if destroying it only intensifies the haunting, unleashing a torrent of vengeful spirits? So I keep it, hidden away in a corner of my room, a constant reminder of the darkness that envelops me. It serves as a reminder of the fragility of our existence, the thin veil that separates the tangible from the intangible. In the end, I am left to navigate this haunting existence, forever changed by the events that unfolded. The camera, once a symbol of artistic passion and connection, now stands as a testament to the eerie and the unexplainable. I am but a witness to the unknown, forever marked by the camera's chilling gaze. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. I hope all of you are having a happy holiday season. On this episode, I'll be reading The Old Portrait by Hume Nesbitt. This time of year is the gift-giving season. A scarf, a pair of socks, and of course, toys. A popular holiday gift is a framed picture. But, as our main character finds out one Christmas Eve, the framed portrait he picked up at the second-hand shop bears few glad tidings. This season is also about traditions. What are your holiday traditions? In my house, we put up a winter tree. Its branches, usually scavenged from the neighborhood, are hung with bells, Krampus ornaments, mistletoe, 
and sparkly things. Thinking about holiday traditions, I thought it would be fun to look at different Christmas traditions from around the world. Here are some excerpts from an article by Carolyn Menyes. Weird Christmas Traditions from Around the World Think of your holiday traditions. They probably include stringing lights on evergreen, rushing to the mall throughout the season to find the perfect gift, and eating more Christmas cookies than you could ever imagine. While Americans celebrate Christmas a certain way, this holiday looks really, really different around the world. Christmas traditions in other countries can range from the enchanting to the bizarre to the horrifying, at least when seen through the American lens. For every lovely story about a Christmas spider who spins a web of gold and brings good luck, there's a pooping figure in a nativity scene or a yule cat who prowls the country waiting to attack people who fail to get a new wool sweater before Christmas Eve. And though we have an image of what a traditional holiday meal should look like, in Japan, there is nothing more festive on Christmas Day than diving into a big bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And if you think eating fast food or celebrating bugs are weird ways to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, these other weird traditions will blow your mind. Krampus. This is my personal favorite. St. Nicholas rewards good children with presents during Christmas, but in Austria and other Central European countries, Krampus punishes the bad boys and girls, and they're terrified of him. He is truly scary. He is half demon, half goat, and is often depicted with heavy change, which he thrashes for dramatic effect. Along with his jolly counterpart, Krampus visits everyone's home for the Feast of St. Nicholas. Christmas Goblins From Greece I gotta sneak up on this word. Okay, the Calicantazaros are evil goblins that come up from the Earth's core, and their job is sawing at the world tree to terrorize homes during the 12 days of Christmas. No two regions of Greece describe these goblins the same way. Sometimes they're small, sometimes they're large, but they're typically black and hairy and have the features of animals. On Christmas, they come up to the Earth's surface and cause mischief during the night throughout the Yuletide. They disappear on January 6th, heading back to their home. The Yule Cat, Iceland. Okay, here comes another one. The Yulakaturin, or the Yule Cat, is not your average Christmas kitten, and he cares deeply about fashion. Dating back to the 19th century, this vicious monster will eat you on Christmas Eve if you do not have new clothes to wear. The Yule Cat meant to encourage farmers to finish shearing their sheep before the holidays, needs an offering of wool to be satisfied, so donning a Christmas sweater is encouraged. Maybe it's so the cat can jump on you and pull several threads in the sweater. My cats have been doing this for years. Who knew it was a Christmas greeting? Bifana, from Italy. Forget Santa Claus. In Italy, it's all about Bifana. Just like Santa, Befana visits homes during the Feast of the Epiphany, January 6th, maybe that's what chases those Greek goblins away, and leaves candy and presents in socks for good boys and girls. Bad children get coal, dark candy, or sticks. Though Befana is portrayed as a haggard old woman covered in soot, she is kind and will sweep homes with her broom before she departs, 
brushing the problems of the previous year behind. Eating Kentucky Fried Chicken, Japan There are a lot of things you don't know about Kentucky Fried Chicken, including the chain's popularity in Japan. Thanks to an insanely popular ad campaign in 1974, it's a Kentucky Fried Christmas for the people of Japan. Though Christmas is a non religious occasion in the country, eating KFC from December 23rd to 25th is so popular that Japanese people start placing orders two months in advance to secure their holiday dinner. This part of the article came with a photo of a life size Colonel Sanders in a Santa suit. I felt it was too horrifying, even for this podcast, to post. Hiding brooms and not cleaning, Norway. If you hate cleaning, Christmas in Norway is the holiday for you. Long ago, Norwegians believed that December 24th was the day when witches and spirits would come out and take to the skies. Since a witch's main mode of transportation is the broom, Folks in this country will hide all brooms and cleaning supplies before Christmas to keep witches away from their homes. This tradition could give a whole new feeling to the funeral service. Now it might be read Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Put the brooms away because we must. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you are interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. Hugh Nesbitt 1849 to 1921, was born in Scotland. At the age of 16, he traveled to Melbourne in Australia and worked there as an actor at the Theatre Royale before traveling around Oceania more widely and returning to Britain in 1872. Before becoming a writer, he tried to establish a career as an artist, and he did illustrate several of his own books and stories. And now, The Old Portrait by Hume Nesbitt. Old-fashioned frames are a hobby of mine. I am always on the prowl amongst the framers and dealers and curiosities for something quaint and unique in picture frames. I don't care for what is inside them, for being a painter, it is my fancy to get the frames first and then paint a picture which I think suits their probable history and design. In this way, I get some curious and I think also some original ideas. One day in December, about a week before Christmas, I picked up a fine but dilapidated specimen of wood carving in a shop near Soho. The gilding had been worn nearly away and three of the corners broken off, yet as there was one of the corners still left, I hoped to be able to repair the others from it. As for the canvas inside this frame, it was so smothered with dirt and time stains. That I could only distinguish it had been a very badly painted likeness of some sort, of some commonplace person, daubed in by a poor pot boiling painter to fill the second hand frame which his patron may have picked up cheaply, as I had done after him. But as the frame was all right, I took the spoiled canvas along with it, 
thinking it might come in handy. For the next few days, my hands were full of work of one kind and another, so that it was only on Christmas Eve that I found myself at liberty to examine my purchase, which had been lying with its face to the wall since I had brought it to my studio. Having nothing to do on this night, and not in the mood to go out, I got my picture and frame from the corner, and laying them upon the table with a sponge, basin of water, and some soap, I began to wash so that I might see them the better. They were in a terrible mess, and I think I used the best part of a packet of soap powder and had to change the water about a dozen times before the pattern began to show up on the frame, and the portrait within it inserted its awful crudeness, vile drawing, and intense vulgarity. It was the bloated, piggish visage of a publican, clearly, or the plentiful supply of jewelry displayed, as is usual in such masterpieces, where the features are not considered of so much important as a strict fidelity in the depicting of such articles as watch-guards and seals, finger-rings and breast-pins. These were all there, as natural and hard as reality. The frame delighted me, and the picture satisfied me that I had not cheated the dealer with my price, and I was looking at the monstrosity as the gaslight beat full upon it, and wondering how the owner could be pleased with himself and thus depicted when something about the background attracted my attention. A slight marking underneath the thin coating, as if the portrait had been painted over some other subject. It was not much, certainly, yet enough to make me rush over to the cupboard where I kept my spirits of wine and turpentine, with which, and a plentiful supply of rags, I began to demolish the public and ruthlessly in the vague hope that I might find something worth looking at underneath. A slow process, that was, as well as a delicate one, so that it was close upon midnight before the gold cable rings and vermilion visage disappeared, and another picture loomed up before me. Then giving it the final washover, I wiped it dry and set it in a good light on my easel. I filled my pipe and then sat down to look at it. What had I liberated from that vile prison of crude paint? for I did not require to set up to know that this bungler of the brush had covered and defiled a work as far beyond his comprehension as the clouds are from a caterpillar. The bust and head of a young woman of uncertain age merged within a gloom of rich accessories painted only as a master hand can paint who is above asserting his knowledge and who has learnt to cover his technique. It was as perfect and natural in its somber yet quiet dignity as if it had come from the brush of Rembrandt. A face and neck perfectly colorless in their pallid whiteness, with the shadows so artfully managed that they could not be seen, and for this quality would have delighted the strong-minded Queen Elizabeth I. At first, as I looked, I saw in the center of a vague darkness a dim patch of gray gloom that drifted into the shadow. Then the grayness appeared to grow lighter as I sat from it, I leaned back in my chair until the features stole out softly and became clear and definite, while the figure stood out from the background as if tangible, although having washed it, I knew that it had been smoothly painted. An intent face with a delicate nose, well-shaped although bloodless. Lips and eyes like dark caverns without a spark of light in them. The hair loosely about the head and oval cheeks, massive, silky-textured, jet-black, and lustrousless, which hid the upper portion of her brow with the ears, 
and fell in straight, indefinite waves over the left breast, leaving the right portion of the transparent neck exposed. The dress and background were symphonies of ebony, yet full of subtle coloring and a masterly feeling, a dress of rich brocaded velvet with a background that represented vast receding space, wondrously suggestive and awe-inspiring. I noticed that the pallid lips were parted slightly and showed a glimpse of the upper front teeth, which added to the intent expression of the face. A short upper lip, which curled upward, with the underlip full and sensuous, or rather, if color had been in it, would have been so. It was an eerie-looking face that I had resurrected on this midnight hour of Christmas Eve. In its passé pallidity, it looked as if the blood had been drained from the body, and I was gazing on an open-eyed corpse. The frame also, I noticed for the first time in its details, appeared to have been designed with the intention of carrying out the idea of life and death, which had before looked like a scrollwork of flowers and fruit, were loathsome snake-like worms twined amongst charnel-house bones which they have covered in a decorative fashion, a hideous design in spite of its exquisite workmanship that made me shudder and wish I had left the cleaning to be done by daylight. I am not at all of nervous temperament, and would have laughed had anyone told me that I was afraid, and yet as I sat here alone, with that portrait opposite to me in this solitary studio— away from all human contact, for none of the other studios were tenanted on this night, and the janitor had gone on his holiday, I wished that I had spent my evening in a more congenial manner, for in spite of a good fire in the stove and the brilliant gas, that intent face and those haunting eyes were exercising a strange influence upon me. I heard the clocks from the different steeples chime out the last hour of the day, one after another, like echoes taking up their refrain and dying away in the distance, and I sat spellbound, looking at that weird picture with my neglected pipe in my hand, and a strange lassitude creeping over me. It was the eyes which fixed me now with the unfathomable depths and absorbing intensity. They gave out no light, but seemed to draw my soul into them, and with it my life and strength as I lay inert before them, until overpowered I lost consciousness and dreamt. I thought that the frame was still on the easel with the canvas, but the woman had stepped from them and was approaching me with a floating motion, leaving behind her a vault filled with coffins, some of them shut down whilst others lay or stood upright and open, showing the grisly contents in their decaying and stained commencements. I could only see her head and shoulders with the somber drapery of the upper portion and the inky wealth of her hair hanging around. She was with me now, that pallid face touching my face, and those cold, bloodless lips glued to mine with a close, lingering kiss, while the soft black hair covered me like a cloud and thrilled me through and through with a delicious thrill that, whilst it made me grow faint, intoxicated me with a delight. As I breathed, he seemed to absorb it quickly into herself, giving me back nothing, getting stronger as I was becoming weaker, while the warmth of my contact passed into her and made her palpitate with vitality. And all at once the horror of approaching death seized upon me, and with a frantic effort I flung her from me and started up from my chair, dazed for a moment and uncertain where I was. 
then consciousness returned, and I looked round wildly. The gas was still blazing brightly, while the fire burned ruddy in the stove. By the timepiece on the mantel, I could see that it was half-past twelve. The picture and frame were still on the easel. Only as I looked at them, the portrait had changed. A hectic flush was on the cheeks while the eyes glittered with life, and the sensuous lips were red and ripe-looking, with a drop of blood still upon the nether one. In a frenzy of horror, I seized my scraping knife and slashed out the vampire picture. Then, tearing the mutilated fragments out, I crammed them into my stove and watched them frizzle with savage delight. I have that frame still, but I have not yet had the courage to paint a suitable subject for it. Nothing like a little vampire story to put you in the Christmas spirit. Instead of ho, 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 you can say blah, blah, blah. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me here on Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies. (laughs) 